Want to get your hands on some boxes and line socks? Very, very easy to do. Tell us a little about yourself and our survey, and we'll send you a pair for free. Just go to custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. You won't regret it. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. And Welcome to Boxes and Lines. Here we go. Here we go. But John's all excited today because we have two guests that John invited. He actually knows people outside I, of the IEX four I walls. know a lot of people, and <laughs> these guys are wonderful gentlemen, very great professionals, and good sense of humor, and I have a lot of interesting it's all, things It's all about say. reciprocity because, um, you know, John spoke on one of their podcasts, so we figured we'd invite them into our podcast. Is that right, John? Mm-hmm. That's, that's <laughs> right. A no, wonderful no. podcast that these guys, uh, Kurt and Chris, co-host called PLI. They do a, a series called Insecurities, this wonderful little double entendre. But there was nothing insecure about your podcast. I thought it, I, it the one that I was involved in. I thought went great. And we'll, yeah, we'll get to that in a second, John. We, you know, once again, <laughs> okay. we haven't right. introduced our guests. Okay. Jesus All right. Christ! Okay. So, Jesus. so it's it's Kurt Wolf <laughs> and Chris Ekimov. Thank you guys for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. And you'll see now that you're much more professional than us. <laughs> Glad to be here. Happy yeah, to be thanks here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> no, very, very welcome. And generally what we do to like ease in is we talk a little bit about like the personal front before we go professional. Not that we ever really get professional. <laughs> but uh, when I was talking to John this morning, he'd mentioned you guys are very active in uh, two nonprofits. And one, I want to talk about them really quick as it nears the end of the year. I know at IX we're doing a whole month of gratitude, we're calling it, where we're doing a lot of, you know, focus on, you know, donations to charities of people's choices. And, you know, Kurt, I understand the nonprofit you're involved in provides uh, economic opportunities to unemployed. And then Chris, you help locate services for crime victims in underserved communities. So both are, you know, actually really, really pertinent to the year that's in this. Thought maybe, uh, Kurt, if you wouldn't mind telling us your involvement really quick, and then we can go to Chris. Yeah, happy to. And I appreciate the invitation to talk about the nonprofit. So I'm the secretary of the board for an organization called La Casina VA. And, you know, like you said, Ronan, we provide job training, including language training for folks who are are trying to find, you know, a job where they can earn a a living wage, where they can maybe get some health care or other assistance. Uh, many of the folks who come through our program have emigrated to the U.S. from Latin American countries, and oftentimes they're working, you know, two or three jobs to just try to, you know, keep a roof over their family's heads, keep keep food on the table, and we're just trying to, you know, help people achieve a version of the American dream, and we think that food services is a great way to do that. So we would love any help anyone out there listening is, is willing to give, of course. Um, it's, been a, it's been a tough year for many, but we've made the most of it. We opened a new facility, and, and we're looking forward to a better 2020. 21. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what we'll do is we'll leave some details on that. So anyone listening and has an interest can make a donation. Chris, what do you got? Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, the treasurer as, as most CPAs are on nonprofit boards. I'm the treasurer of a organization called the Network for Victim Recovery in DC, NVRDC, that focuses on providing holistic services to victims of violent crime and sexual assault in the district. Basically, those folks uh, without the means to participate actively in their own criminal justice proceeding, provided with counseling services when they show up to the hospital and an advocate who walks with them through the entire process, not only from the emergency room to filing a police report, but also gets paired with pro bono attorneys at some of the best law firms here in Washington, D.C., who 
use pro bono efforts to put their first and second year associates out to get trial experience, to get you know protective orders or restraining orders against uh, domestic abusers or, or things of that nature. So a wildly effective organization at just being there for the people that they serve. And uh, you know, very happy to be a part of the, the leadership team there that helps uh, organize and, and provide those services. So a uh, great, great organization. You know, Kurt and I often share our, our stories of, of serving on boards together. So uh, by no means a competition, but we welcome <laughs> donations to both, yeah. both organizations. No, that, we'll uh, that, we'll that's give you fantastic. a readout. Oh, we'll give you a readout and he gets more uh, contributions. <laughs> they, they are. I, it's I, all about JR. Yeah. Uh, JR, I think we should cut this part out of the podcast because these guys are making me feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not all about you, Ronan. Um, it is. No, it's so great that you guys are doing that. And frankly, because the folks that are served by the organizations that you're involved with obviously started off the year in a worse situation than uh, most of us. And and since then have been even more challenged than most of us have. So part of uh, feeling grateful about how we've been able to navigate this time period is... uh, giving, giving something to people. We tip our hat to you fellas. <laughs> we do. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So on, on to the business of the podcast, PLI Insecurities, your podcast. Question of the day, how, how'd you guys get started with your podcast? What's the background on this? Well, it really all came down to, to Kurt and I and Twitter. And I'll let that, that stew for a minute. But really, we connected over <laughs> this <could> a, be <laughs> a, a, a conference hashtag at a securities enforcement conference that occurs every year. It had branched out into kind of having participants, you know, share conversations and quotes over Twitter. Kurt and I, I think we're, we're the only people that year, if not uh, two of the three people that first year they did that to, to participate. So had gotten connected via Twitter and, and really found a kindred spirit in each other to, to share stories, talk about some of the technical stuff. I'm sure that uh, if anyone's listened to our podcast can, can see we get excited about. And then a few years later, actually, just on a whim, got approached by PLI. They were looking at providing new content and both of our firms are, are preferred uh, member firms of PLI. And they saw that as a good opportunity to, to put a microphone down where we usually have the keyboard up to tweet uh, and share some of those insights. So, uh, you know, our, our focus is really to provide what, what Kurt and I call the practitioner's perspective uh, on some of those issues. So myself being a practicing forensic accountant and, and Kurt in the, the legal space as an attorney, uh, think that we've got a little bit of insight that we can share also with a couple of laughs, maybe not as much as, as we have on the Boxes and Lines podcast, but talk about some of those, uh, some of those key issues in the day and, and hopefully to, to PLI's listenership can, can hear a bit more. But Kurt, I don't know if you've got another color on that story. No, I think that's right. I think what you missed was the obvious opportunity to uh, drop your Twitter handle in there. Uh, so I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> He's at Ekamoff CPA. Uh, you can that's find right. me at Enforce <laughs> underscore update. But no, I mean, that, that's yeah. absolutely right. We try, to, we try to get the right mix between keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the Insecurities podcast. You know, some of the episodes go in, in one direction more than the other. If we're talking market structure with JR, I, you know, that, that has a certain bend to it. Whereas if we're talking insider trading, you know, that, that just feels a little different, but we try to cover the waterfront in terms of securities, rag and enforcement. Yeah. Well, you, you definitely, as opposed to our, most of the guests that we have on our podcast, and one of the things that makes you interesting and valuable to us is you definitely have a, a focus on enforcement activities and investigations by securities regulators, the SEC, FINRA, others um, as well, and also investigations on the accounting side where Chris is um, involved as well. So that's a it's something that a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have familiarity with and have to deal with, but we just haven't had that uh, much of that focus before. So it's really worthwhile to have you guys shed some light on those dark corners. 
And God love you. Oh. You you had John as a guest on your podcast. When when is that podcast out? So it, it came out um, what a month ago, I think. We were three episodes ago. It's it's actually killing it. You know, I I don't know if I'm supposed to compliment there you John go. or not, but yeah, it, yeah, mid October. I was your be- I was your best guest, wasn't I? Your most highly rated. Oh, guest, absolutely. Uh, to this point yeah. in your thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, delete that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a good chat. We talked a little bit yeah. about you know market structure issues. We had uh, another friend of our podcast it, and with our with our buddy Dan yeah. Iceman of right. MFS. Yeah, that's yes. right. So. Good guy, good guy. Just thinking a little bit about, you know, what might happen on the regulatory landscape uh, from, a, from a market structure or market plumbing standpoint, which I know is, you know, something the good folks at IEX think, think an awful lot about. So it was, a, it was a perfect match. And you can also find that episode with the infamous JR in our podcast feed right before <laughs> this one. Thank you. Um, well, so to talk about, to sort of delve into some of these issues of in- investigations enforcement. So Everybody knows we've got a new crew at the SEC that's going to be coming in. We don't know exactly what, what who the crew is going to be, but we know it's going to be a somewhat different crew uh, that may have a different a different focus and take on some activities. So the SEC, as most of the folks who are listening to this podcast know, by you know historically compared to other agencies, tends to be an enforcement oriented agency, and that's been true historically, regardless of who's in the White House, but. One can expect that under a new chair, there may be a difference in focus on enforcement activities, maybe a willingness to push the envelope a little bit more in, a, in, in some areas. So I'm just curious to get your take on where you think the commission might be going or where they might be going further than they have been going the last few years on the enforcement front, if either of you want to take a stab. Wow, you make fun of me when I ask a question that's more than five seconds long. <laughs> Chris and Kurt, are you with us? Yes, are you with yeah. us? Yeah, the yeah they're still awake and they words. got that. It was a lovely lead-in. Change week. at the SEC. Go Answer, go. I'll take a stab. I mean, I think... To some extent, that depends on on who becomes the chairperson at the SEC, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of the possibilities uh, in a couple of minutes. But just, you know, like, what do I see the direction of the enforcement division being, you know, look, if we look at what the priorities have been over the past couple of years, let's look at 2020, for example. Number one was COVID-19. Number two was misconduct by issuers and registrants. Number three was holding individuals accountable. We can debate that. Number four was retail investors. And number five is like, sort of getting their own plumbing right, you know, working through investigations more quickly, figuring out how to reward cooperators and whistleblowers. I can't imagine that the priorities are going to read very differently going forward, no matter who the chairman is, right? We're always going to talk about retail investors. We're always going to talk about issuer and disclosure types of cases. You know, some of the things that I think are likely to you know, I look at what is the makeup of those buckets, right? And so what do I think that might include? I think we're going to see more insider trading. That's gone a little bit quiet over the last couple of years. I think in particular, we may see insider trading that involves, you know, folks who knew about things during the so-called 8K gap or 10B51 trading plans. We've seen a lot about that in the context of some pharmaceutical companies in 2020. Duty of care for broker dealers, I think, is is lingering out there, whether that's, you know, some hardcore reg BI enforcement or a new standard of care, it remains to be seen. And then for me, this is one of my one of my pet things that I like to talk about are just sort of products related enforcement, complex products, you know, different kinds of exchange traded products or, you know, exchange traded funds that I think have been uh, have been sold with greater frequency over the last few years, and the SEC does not like an awful lot of them. So those are some of the things I would be looking for. But Chris, you probably have a, a different bent on that. 
Yeah, I was going to say maybe a narrower <laughs> bend too, because accounting is really what matters, right? Across all of those things. That's right? what I one. always say. That's, uh, I mean, I, I'm you know. fascinated by it myself. That's right. It, it's, it's, it's like a square meal for breakfast. It's needed every day. Hey, so you gotta, have, you gotta have passion about something, man. That's right. So I mean, the, 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 <laughs> that's your thing. <laughs> you're, you're really painting me as quite an exciting guy here, Ronan. And I, and I don't know if I can shake it, but you know, the, the two biggest developments in accounting in the past few years have been changing the revenue recognition standard and a change for the way that leases are accounted for. Uh, and that's separate and apart from, from financial services, where we talk a little bit about what's called CSOL or current expected credit losses. So those three elements have really come to shape a very long tailed transition in accounting treatment. None of this is flipping the switch overnight. You go from making $100 to making zero. But as those reporting periods start to prove out the manner in which you're accounting for your revenue or disclosing about your leases, there's going to be a lot more questions from the commission as they can start to almost build a case of, of behavior over that time period. So we have seen those, those switches flipped. But the impact of that usually trails by 18 months to three years in terms of actual actions. And so we'll always be watching the comment letters about accounting treatments to major issuers to understand those as well. So a long-winded way of saying, yes, accounting will still be top of mind. So JR, you and I can, can talk about that at length and, and leave these two behind. <laughs> I would, yeah. yeah, we won't be saddled. We won't be held back yeah, by that's right, uh, no. trying to explain every concept to Ronan. Um, well, certainly in the accounting and auditing realm, China, Chinese companies mm -hmm. um, have been much in the news, yeah. uh, or China is our current president <laughs> likes to likes to call it. So, where wh where do you see that going? I mean, I know that the the SEC has put out proposals for yanking Chinese companies from exchanges they don't ultimately agree to be audited by U.S. approved auditors, and I think there is legislation that's pending in Congress around the same mm -hmm. in the same direction. Where where do you see that going? Uh, I mean, nowhere fast. Right now, I think it's going to get locked up until at least early next year. And the proposed guidance is about the Chinese companies making a change in the way that they present their information mm -hmm. over the next three years before they get booted. So we're again, we're not talking about Jan 1. These companies are going to be off the listings here in the U.S. And just to clarify for your listeners, oftentimes a U.S.-based audit firm will be auditing a U.S.-based company or a Chinese-based company with operations in country in China. And because of the specific jurisdictional issues between our two countries, they'll use a Chinese affiliate audit firm to conduct the audit. And so it's really kind of that that difference of, of quality or that difference of acceptance of quality between a Chinese affiliate firm and a Chinese firm and, and down that kind of very detailed and technical road. So the short answer, uh, John, is I don't see that being a huge push until after the inauguration. Uh, again, mm -hmm. Kurt, you and I talked about this on a yeah. recent episode of our podcast, was one of kind of the pet projects of, of Vice President Biden when he was serving in that role at the time to work on a memorandum of understanding with the Chinese audit regulator. So I, I think there'll be more developments in the next six months. I don't really have my finger up in the political winds to understand which way they're blowing related to that specific audit issue, but but we'll, we'll keep that top of mind. But it sounds like even if people push forward, we're talking about a three-year lag time. So it's not like people who are currently invested in Chinese companies are going to wake up and find out that they they don't have a market for their securities. All things the same, if you have Chinese-based company A accepting the agreement and changing it tomorrow, and Chinese company B not accepting that, I mean, you know, the share price will move based on that information, but I don't see it being kind of a broad market shift up until that guidance becomes effective, uh, like I said, in, in, in a couple of years. Right. Got it. Well, moving, as Kurt was kind of alluding to earlier, questions around who the personalities might might be, who we're going to, who may end up being the new chair of the commission or other other folks we want to look at. Any any speculation, any inside scoop? 
Any gossip <laughs> on who's going to sit in the big chair? <laughs> yeah. My, my, I'll tell you, the only thing I know is my phone is not rung. No one has called me. Yeah. Ask, so. Well, you know. Well, you should have recorded this podcast earlier. It yeah. might have helped. Well, I, you know, I, I think at this point, with the publicity you're going to get from this, you could at least be chief accountant. Yeah. Um, you if not. Yeah. People much smarter than me are in that role. Mm-hmm. But Kurt, go ahead with what you think. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, no, no inside baseball. Uh, I'm not sure who it's going to be. I think we probably all read a lot of the same reporting. Uh, you know, some I think is a little more a little more likely than others. You know, I've seen reports that say, you know, maybe it's going to be Preet Bharara, you know, who was the former U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. I, I would put that in the very, very unlikely category. I mean, that that would be. Uh, in some respects, a, a, a step down, no, no disrespect to the uh, chairman or chairperson of the SEC, but I, I don't know. I, I think people would generally want to go in the other direction. For me, I, I think the thing that may actually determine what we see at the SEC is the outcome of the Senate, the Senate runoff elections in Georgia. Right. You know, the, the Democrats have to win both seats in order to have a majority in the Senate. That That's probably unlikely. I haven't looked at 538 this week, but I'm, I'm sure the good folks over there are running, <laughs> running the analysis, if you want to know. Um, but, you know, I think that a Senate where the Republicans control would not, uh, it would not confirm the same nominee that a Senate that's Democratic controlled would, would confirm. So I, I think it, I think it really just depends on, on the outcome of those races. But don't you think unlikely, I mean, number one, regardless of what happens in this uh, Georgia races, it's going to be a very closely divided Senate. And the, uh, the banking committee, at least under Crapo's leadership, as my sense is, has been, you know, less partisan, perhaps, than some of the other areas. So unless uh, we're talking about somebody who's just like, yeah. totally out in the ozone and, and unacceptable to a large segment contingent of the banking committee, don't you think that the people he's most likely to appoint in that position are fairly likely to be confirmed? I, well, so I, I think it depends. I think this could go a couple of ways. I mean, generally, yes, I, I agree with you. You know, one scenario, this is the scenario that I like if the Republicans retain control of the Senate is, um, is actually that, you know, President Biden would nominate Allison Heron Lee to step up from a commissioner slot to the chairperson slot. And then we'd be backfilling a commissioner slot. Right. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. easier to get through. And and then you start looking at different names than we're talking about at all. You know, you start looking at, uh, you know, Biden recently announced his financial regulation transition team. They include some folks that I think would be popular, <clears throat> popular choices. You know, there's Amanda Fisher, who was chief of staff for uh, for Representative Katie Porter. You got uh, Satyam Khanna, who's now at NYU, but he was on he was on Rob Jackson's staff, and before that, he was on yeah. FSOC. You've got Andy Green at the Center for American Progress, who was counsel to Kara Stein, yeah. and he was on the Senate Banking Committee in a council role for a long time. So those yeah. are some of the backfill options I like. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're if we're just looking for you know a new commissioner, or I'm sorry, a new chairperson, I, I think Rob Jackson is looking better all the time. I think folks on the Hill generally like him. He's has a demonstrated willingness uh, to sort of reach across the aisle and come to uh, to consensus views. So I I think he I think he looks like a good choice. And you know the amazing thing is you're saying, <laughs> Curtis. It seems to me you'd be a wonderful sports commentator because you're like handicapping those things in the in the same way <laughs> as uh, you would if you were, you know, talking about the Giants trade pick. This is more ex- exciting, though, right? I mean, yeah, 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 no, definitely. <laughs> really cluing in the listeners yeah. to get into our podcast, Curtis, with <laughs> handicapping more, SEC commissioner. Like I said exciting. earlier in the podcast, you got to have a passion for something. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> oh man, for each of us. Good man. Well, <laughs> well, we know we know a lot of the. People 
people that you just mentioned, and we also know folks that are uh, connected to the transition team. So Ted Kaufman, who is, I guess, leading the transition um, effort, uh, served on the Equity Market Structure Advisory Committee with with Brad Katsuyama, our, our CEO, and, and others. Um, so we know him pretty well. I know Gary Gensler from the time that he was running the CFTC. And so it's a you know, it's a group of people that are either reform-minded or certainly not shy about pushing back against incumbents and the big banks and folks that are might chafe at some of the reforms they'd want to. So, so it's definitely have the chance of having a much more reform-minded commission than you've had over the last few years. Yeah. So, the question just popped into my head. Clayton is gone, right? He's stepping down at the end of December. Yeah. How long can it go before someone's appointed? Right. They they would they would have someone act as acting head. Is that right? Or acting co- chair, and then vote someone in, like, you know, the elections dragged on. How does that work? Yeah. So uh, the, the timeline has gone like this in the past. And I'll just use, you know, this happened four years ago and the the, the chairperson stepped down and one of the commissioners stepped in uh, as the interim head for a while. That was Michael Pivovar. You know, yeah. we were in a little bit of a different position because we were going you know, we had a, a Republican step up to act as the chair and we were going into a Republican administration. So he, he hung on for a while. But the timeline was like this, uh, you know, uh, President-elect Trump actually announced his intention to nominate Jay Clayton before he was sworn in. I think it was on like January 3rd, 4th, 5th, something like that. Right. Uh, Pivovar was already in the big chair. It took through the beginning of May for Clayton to get through the confirmation hearings and to actually be sworn in. I, I would imagine we're looking at a similar timeline here. I think the thing that's different is, I think we all expect that, that Hester Peirce will, will sit in the chair on an interim basis until Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, and then he will ask someone else to sit in that role on an interim basis. A lot of people think it's going to be Allison Heron Lee. It doesn't give Hester very much time <laughs> to sort of sit in that role. Right. Right. Yeah. It's uh, three, three, four weeks is not uh, enough time to make any, and, and not that somebody in that position would try to make sweeping changes, even if they were in a position to, I, to do so. I, I don't know if I would, uh, if I would give, give that much credit to Pivovar <laughs> based on some of the things he tried to do, but that's okay. Well, well, we'll let that one we're slide. just not, yeah. yeah, I don't know that I would, I would but we're not, yeah, we're not. We're, we're, we're not making any comments, but I'm nodding. No. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that very silent auditorium. <laughs> Right. Yes. So in any event, I, I, and and I would imagine, you know, the, the folks that are connected to the transition are people who have a lot of experience and a lot of uh, background and understanding of these agencies. So my hunch is that Biden's going to have somebody picked and named, uh, at least in mind, by the time he's inaugurated and then fairly uh, announced pretty quickly uh, thereafter, if not before. I would think that you there's a good chance that you would have, assuming fairly quick confirmation, somebody in place relatively early in the year. Do you think that's, you think that's fair? I think that's fair. Again, I'll go back to the, you know, I, I don't think we're going to hear his intention before we see results in Georgia, right. but I would imagine that we will see them relatively soon thereafter. Interesting. Yeah. Well, apart from, uh, apart from all of that kind of gossip stuff <laughs> and figuring out who the, who the players are likely to be, more broadly, in terms of regulatory focus on things that touch on equity markets or might be of interest to them. So one thing that 
One thing that jumps out to me are buybacks. Stock buybacks have been a topic that has become fairly political. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of questions about whether buybacks represent a use of corporate assets that really is a productive use um, in terms of growing, providing job opportunities, growing the economy, et cetera. Do you think do you think that buybacks may be further limited or more restricted in any way or any aspect of that that may that where where the SEC may look closer in a new SEC? Either of you, I see you're looking Chris, very pensive. No, I, it was a it was a very insightful question. I would say two things about about buybacks. One, if we're in a world where Rob Jackson is the chairman, this is absolutely on the table. He he's never been a big fan. You know, mm-hmm. for, a, for a whole host of reasons, uh, I don't think he thinks it's great for investors. I don't think, I, I don't think he thinks it's always clean, right? There's, there's the opportunity to, to, to be manipulative in the, in the timing or the way that you execute the trades. And the other thing I would say is, you know, we saw a case earlier this year that related to a company's buyback plans and, and the SEC enforcement staff really didn't like the timing of it. They didn't like the, the process or the procedures that they followed to, to vet the buybacks some of which happened on the eve of a merger. And so I think it just, it feels like this is a conversation that's going on at the SEC. And again, if you get somebody like a Rob Jackson, I think that conversation is going to happen more frequently. I guess the other thing that I wonder about is whether some of the more controversial split decisions that have happened over the past couple of years. So I'm thinking about relaxation of some of the corporate disclosure requirements, relaxation around some of the requirements over private offerings, make some some of that easier to do, choices around ESG disclosure. Are those kinds of, do you, do you, do you think it's likely that some of those will be pulled back or reversed? Is there going to be an effort to relook at some of the things that the SEC, um, some of the harder choices that they've made in a, in a new administration? Yes and no. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there are a number of- That pretty much covers right, yeah, the waterfront. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, are, we, question, are we done? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think- uh, Kurt, you're on mute. No, yeah. <laughs> Again? <laughs> you know, there are some rulemakings that are still on the table. And if they're still there, you know, you could see them getting killed. And I think that's things like, you know, um, fund valuation, advertising or changes to the advertising rule. Some of these things that are looking more like the, the principles-based rules that I think the, the Clayton Commission prided itself on creating, I, they're not for everybody. And those rules in particular, I think people don't quite know what to do with them. So I could see some of these things just getting killed immediately. With respect to the things that are already through, I absolutely think they're going to go back and look at what's been done to, you know, sort of open access to private markets or, you know, private investments and, and disclosures. I, I think we're going to see a lot in that space. I, I think they want to make it easier to digest for investors. I think they want to, to the extent they can make it shorter. And ESG is 100% you know, on the table. In the next four years, we're going to hear an awful lot about it. I think a lot of that is going to have to do with figuring out how to come up with some kind of standardized reporting. And this is where I kick it over to Chris because he, yeah. he can tell me what that means exactly. <laughs> Leaning over the edge of the cliff here, right? The, the more information yeah. you, you ask from a company, the more it costs them to provide that information, right? It's an oversimplification. But when you start getting into these very complex, wonky, and, and to your point, Kurt, unstandardized uh, topics, uh, it's very hard to compare what a, a 
a domestically based uh, manufacturer of commercial airlines does from an ESG perspective versus a financial services company with you know operations in, in countries throughout the world. And, and you're asking them to provide similar information. So if you take the revenue line, right, you can kind of get your head around how both of those guys make money. But if you're asking how they are impacting you know ESG related topics and what's required from their disclosure, it can take a lot of effort on one or both of them to get to the same place which is really what the disclosure information is for, right? To be comparable so that investors can make informed decisions about what they're doing with their money. So I'm hopeful that there can be a right answer. I don't think it's anytime soon. This is probably going to be one of those areas that is more of a, an assimilation of, of activities in practice than it is a, a decree from on high about how ESG should be presented. But again, that depends on the folks that make up the commission and what their, their feeling is. As you can think of someone like a, like a Senator Warren having a much different position than, than, than Commissioner Jackson or others who, who've been tagged to the right. potential uh, list of chair people. Well, you got to have a, you have to have a standard, right? You have to have mm -hmm. uh, some kind of clear standard as to, um, in order to ensure that the disclosure is roughly comparable and that people aren't just kind of like making it up, mm -hmm. which is one of our previous guests on the podcast was actually Elise Walters, a friend of mine who's been active in um, helping to establish the SASB standards, mm -hmm. which is like one thing that's out there. It's, uh, you know, that that's not free of criticism either, but at least there's been some effort to standardize some mm -hmm. of that disclosure. Yeah, and everyone's favorite example of this is is the conflict minerals disclosure that came about about uh, twelve or fifteen years ago, where every company, no matter who they were, had to disclose whether or not they interacted with the conflict diamond industry. Really? You know that that rankled thousands of companies because they have nothing to do with jewelry or diamonds <laughs> yeah. or mining or anything, right? But they had to make a disclosure. So, We're in the clue, Jr. We're in that's the clear. A, I mean, <laughs> that's, I'm, 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 that's, have you been drinking? <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So, so th yeah, that's, that's when these things go wrong. And I think to your point, JR, there, there's a way to make them right. And, and I'm hopeful we can develop that or see that developed in, in the coming months. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of things, uh, an interim chair may or may not try to scuttle during the, the few weeks while, while that person's on the chair, uh, in the chair. You know, look, I do think there's plenty of room for, for innovation in the space to, to get this right. And, you know, it's, it's just interesting, I think, seeing uh, how the commission makeup impacts where the commission wants to see innovation. You know, I think there are some right now on the commission who would love to see folks talk about how can we come up with standardized reporting? Let's, let's innovate in that space. And some say it's impossible, but you know where innovation is needed is cryptocurrencies, right? So yeah. it sort of, it all depends <laughs> on your, on your perspective, exactly. I guess. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what occurs to me is there's so much effort and talk, uh, a discussion and debate around what investors need to know and what they want to know. And surprisingly little effort to actually find out what investors want to know. So one of the, one thing that would be really helpful is if you really had well-constructed comprehensive surveys of all kinds of retail institutional investors to find out what would you what do you really want to see around ESG disclosure if anything what would be helpful to you what other kinds of disclosures would be helpful for particular kinds of companies so it's an interesting point Jared and I know through the accounting standards practice uh, you know when, as they're rolling out new regulations or new guidance there's a comment period right for all of those but I haven't gone right. back and looked at how many of those published comment letters are, are provided on behalf of investors I'm sure I SS and others get involved from an investor perspective, but a lot of that discussion is the in-house guys saying, I can't do this. It's going to be too hard. It's going to cost too much. Or the audit firms coming out and talking about the ways yeah. that might impact them across a variety of, of practices. So no, I think that's a yeah. great, great point. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're, you're sorry, Ronan. Sorry, Ronan. Yeah. He doesn't like anybody to praise me. Why don't you ask our, our, our standard question then? Oh, okay. Oh, well, we're down to Ronan's oh. uh, and uh, attention span is waning here. So we're, we're, we're moving on to the moving on to the end of the podcast. No, I think the, the standard you, question. You can ask other questions if you want. <laughs> no, 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 I think, I think we've definitely... We've, we've, we want to leave something for the next one because you guys have been so great. If you've listened to any Boxes and Lines podcast before, you will know. And frankly, if you have listened to any, I can't believe that you actually came on um, this one. But you know that we always ask um, folks, what is their favorite Wall Street movie? But you're not, I think you're not allowed to say Wall Street at this point because it's, you know, become too trite, uh, cliched. Um, so pick a different one. Chris? You, you, I mean, you know my answer. You brought The Accountant on the podcast. The greatest Wall, Wall Street-related movie is The Accountant, starring Ben Affleck, <laughs> which he is the you know hyper-military-trained uh, accounting guru who's able to, to launder funds through all the, uh, all the bad channels. And also assassinate people, right? I mean, you, I can't tell you if that happens regularly with CPAs, but we do, <laughs> we do have special meetings for that group. <laughs> Closer to home, I've always really loved uh, Other People's Money with Danny DeVito talking through that kind of breakdown sale in the 80s. So a lot of interesting topics out there. That's one that's always been close for me. But uh, Kurt, what are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. I feel like uh, I'm supposed to say the wolf of Wall Street because it, it's at least a good joke, right? Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I read somewhere, I, I think over the summer, that although it's not a movie, billions is an acceptable answer to this question. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. I'll go with that because it's often how I explain to people what I, what I do or what I spend my days thinking about, even mm-hmm. though I'm sort of, you know, like, you know, the, the, the lawyer in the show that nobody really likes the scenes that he's in, <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know billions, it's really cool, right? You like that. I remember when the lawyer, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you mean the prosecutor? Didn't like no, him. no, no, okay. yeah, the other no, that one. guy, no, yeah. The- but yeah, I mean, that show, that show resonates with me because it's like a really sexy version of, of what I, what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that's yeah. great. I, I, I don't think anyone has chosen either of those two choices before. So well done. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Very well done. And I think because perhaps you did such a great job. What are we going to do? <laughs> we have the... a parting. We have a parting <laughs> gift, don't we? We're going to send you your very own pair of boxes and line socks. Oh, I hear they're, wow. I hear they're comfy and cozy. Uh, yeah, they, they, they are. They are. They are for the, for the cold winter months ahead. I, su- I suggest if you really want your podcast to take off, get yourself some branded socks. You'll never look back. You'll never look back. But look, we, we, we really appreciate having you guys on. And like the timing is great with everything that's going on. I, I think when some of these decisions are made or when we're in the, the middle of the decisions being made, it'd be great to have you guys back again. Yeah. We'd, we'd love to chat about it anytime. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. You guys are so, you guys are so much fun and you're so smooth and so professional. It's a, it's a low bar where Rowan, Ronan and I are concerned to clear, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, it's really been great. Uh, no, excellent. Cheerio everyone. Cheerio. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. 
Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.